0: The scripture reading today is from Genesis, chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done on me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction." He shall be a wild ass of a man, with his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy. For she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. The Word of the Lord.
1: Let us pray. Fountain of love, word of truth, spirit of power, we ask now that you would be with us. We ask that you would help us to believe that you have seen to this particular moment in our lives and that you know us completely and you love us completely. Help us today, like Hagar, to feel seen by you and known by you, so much so that we too might look to you and say that you are the God who sees. Give us grace today, we pray, as we listen now in Christ's name. Amen. So welcome to our new sermon series, When Things Fall Apart, because frankly, that's kind of how things feel right now. So over the course of this fall, we're going to be looking at portraits of people in Scripture who are experiencing what might be called an unraveling of life, to find new ways of thinking and being in the midst of a very difficult situation we find ourselves in. And so today is the story of Hagar, and what a sordid story it is you might need to take a bath after this sermon. I mean, as sorted as Genesis 16 is that you just saw and was read from, wait till we look into Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15. So let's get right into it. So first there is this sorted backstory. From Genesis 12 to 15, let's put it this way. If Abraham and Sarah had sent their saliva off to Ancestry.com, they would have very surprising results coming back. Maybe not surprising to them, but surprising to us not a lot of branches in the tree, honestly. Um, It involves sexual slavery, violence, and abuse, and incest. So let's just start with this. Abraham and Sarah were brother and sister. Discuss amongst yourselves. (laughs) Yeah, they share the same father. We don't learn about that until Genesis 20, but there it is. Abraham's brother, Nahor, he had two brothers, Nahor and Haran, And Haran, when his wife died, decided to marry someone, so he married his brother Nahor's daughter. Hello. And this just goes on and on. Abraham and Sarah, likely the product of incest in such a family system, and so when God calls Abraham to get out in Genesis 12, God doesn't just say, get out of the country, but literally, get out of your father's house. Interesting, huh? The literal translation is, get you gone from your country, kindred, and your father's house. And based on Abraham's uh, later behavior when he has a son who marries a relative, we don't know if Abraham really got a lot of this flushed out of his family system. These people are all the victims of patriarchy. They're victims of horrible decisions being made to and for and about them. And they're going to make horrible decisions as well as we continue to go on and tell this story. Just like many of our horrible decisions come out of horrible things that have been visited upon us that we did not necessarily in any way, shape, or form want or ask for. That trite but very true phrase, hurt people, hurt people, applies. So Abraham and Sarah got out. There's a famine, so they head to Egypt where there's lots of prosperity, and that's when Sarah's beauty, as it often is in misogynistic patriarchal cultures, Sarah's beauty is a liability, especially to Abraham, because the Pharaoh takes note through his associates of the beauty of Sarah, and if Abraham is married to Sarah, well, there's a way to deal with Abraham. But if Sarah is Abraham's sister, which by the way is true, there's a different reality. So Abraham doesn't tell everything. He says, this is my sister. Abraham feared death more than Abraham cared about protecting Sarah. So Sarah's brother husband, Abraham sold her to a man that he knew would use her for sex. Now that's the blunt truth. A hip-hop translation with this would be that she was, quote, pimped out, unquote. That turn of phrase comes courtesy of Old Testament scholar Will Gaffney, who I will quote in a minute. So I want you to see first Sarah as a survival of sexual violence, sexual abuse, and her partner as complicit in that. This is one of the reasons that I actually love the Bible, because it's real talk. It tells the truth. It doesn't hide things. At some point, Pharaoh figures all of this out and freaks out. And instead of killing Abraham, which he probably thought about doing, he decides to give Abraham a bunch of stuff and say, just get out of here. That's how Abraham became wealthy. Sarah's body made Abraham a wealthy man. And so they leave Egypt and they are loaded. And in Genesis 13, 14, 15, a lot goes down, part of which God tells Abraham, I'm going to be a God to you and to all your children. Your descendants are going to just be scattered all over the place like the stars in the skies. And you're going to be wealthy. Children and money, so much winning. Except the children thing wasn't happening which means you're now ready to read verse 1 of Genesis 16, because the first thing it says right out of the gate, Sarah had no children. It then goes on to say she had a slave. Because when Pharaoh made Abraham loaded, he loaded him up with cattle and donkeys and oxen and all this money, et cetera, et cetera, and as well as this text tells us, loaded Abraham up with male and female slaves. And so she was Hagar, who was, one, female in a patriarchal culture, two, an Egyptian, so ethnically inferior in the culture of Abraham and Sarah, and three, a slave, just an object to be used. And so Sarah, as is often the case, goes from victim to oppressor. Will Gaffney, in her amazing book that I can't recommend enough, womanist Midrash, says this, Sarah too is a product of patriarchy and women can and do subjugate other women and sometimes men under patriarchy's dominion. Sarah employs the lesson she learned in her father's house against Hagar and to some degree against Abraham. Sarah will seize the body of a girl she considers her property and subjects her to physical and sexual violence and a forced pregnancy while turning the tables on the husband who sold her for sheep, camels, donkeys, and human chattel. Later, her abuse of Hagar will be so violent, so oppressive, that it is described with the same word that Exodus used to describe Egyptian oppression and affliction of the Israelites, a word that includes rape as one of its primary meanings. Mm. So friends, what we're looking at here is the kind of decision-making that is born of desperation, is born in saying, I know what's been promised to me, I know what I must have in order to be happy, and I will take matters into my own hands. And when we get into that space, we will always employ any means that we think are necessary that certainly are not disconnected from all the pain that has been inflicted on us throughout our lifetime. Because if we have not transformed that pain, we will transmit it onto others in our desperate moments. So Hagar, and by the way, this is not her real name. By the way, just like slaves of every time and place, the names are often lost. But Hagar means foreigner or stranger or sojourner. So imagine Hagar, she's taken out of Egypt. She's told her name is now foreigner. Your name is stranger not even a feminine name, it's a male name, but her female body, her female body will be colonized to gestate the hopes of Abraham and Sarah. And you know what? It works, kind of the way things work when the powerful oppress those with less powerful. I mean, a child is born and Sarah immediately rejects this child rejects Hagar and then blames Abraham for her idea. Talk about gaslighting. After being dealt with harshly, Hagar rightly runs away because getting away sometimes is the only option. (sighs) Okay, let's take a breath, everybody. (laughs) End of scene one. Who feels like they need a bath? I mean, Let's do a quick application though. That whole bit about making decisions under desperation, can you relate to that? I know I certainly can. Taking matters into our own hands. Mm. I have nothing compassionate about that because sometimes if you're doing the best you can with what you know to do and that's all you can do and I understand that. But often some of our worst decisions are made in the midst of despair, desperation. When we began to demand a resolution, when we're not willing to be able to enable to sit longer with discomfort or anxiety or pain in in such a liminal space where we don't have control and we don't know how things are going to turn out i mean is it not true that perhaps your unwillingness my unwillingness to not sit in those liminal spaces have led to some of the most horrible decisions we've ever made in our lives and going forward then what might it look like for you to make decisions instead out of rest and trust. When things fall apart as they are right now, how might you be aware of the tendency to panic, to take matters into your own hands? And in that knowledge, slow down and take intentional steps to breathe. There's a popular meme that you may have seen that I've seen going around recently, and it says this, if you're reading this, release your shoulders from your ears, unclench your jaw, remove your tongue from the roof of your mouth. We physically tend to hold on to stress in least noticeable ways. Relax. It's good advice. All right, scene one over. Scene two, the intervention. So Hagar's out. She's been kind of tossed away. She's damaged goods to the culture around her. She's alone. And then we had this God figure in verse 8 come in, and it says this. Where have you come from, and where are you going? Such powerful questions. And before asking those questions, the messenger of God addresses her by name and predicament. Hagar, slave girl of Sarah. God knows her pain, knows her story. God is not looking for new information. God knows where she's come from and where she's going. God is reaching out in relationship. And the first thing God says to her, I would tell you right now, is really problematic. God says, go back to Sarah and submit to her. Nope. (laughs) I mean, no would have been my response to be really honest. It sounds to me like, go back to your abuser. And I want you to know, you will never be told that by a pastor in this church or by anybody in our community or in our counseling center. I assure you of that. So that's a hard thing. I wrestled with that as I look at this passage. But maybe there's no way for a pregnant woman to survive in the wilderness, and God does make promises to her. You will be safe. You will have children. You will have descendants. You will have this and this. And if I'm Hagar, I might be going yeah, that sounds a lot like the promise that you gave Abraham and Sarah, and still they don't have children, and look at me now. I wouldn't blame Hagar for saying, hard pass. But something has happened here, and the something is Hagar, I believe, feels deeply seen and known, which, as you know, is one of my summaries of the gospel, to be fully known and fully Love to be seen by God. And it must have been enough for her against all the odds to trust God in that moment. In fact, unless you know that you are seen, known, and loved by God no matter what, how could you you possibly trust God with your life? In verse 13, she becomes the first person in all of the Bible to name God. Before Abraham names God Jehovah-Jireh, The God who provides, before David names God El Shaddai, the God of heaven and earth, God Almighty, we have Hagar, a female Egyptian slave, as the first person to name God, in which she names God El Roi, the God who sees. The God who sees me, we should say the God who sees you. And that is incredibly powerful, How powerful? Let me give you an illustration of how powerful. In 2010, there was an artist named Marina Abramovich, a performance artist. She went up to the sixth floor of the Museum of Modern Art, and for three months, seven days a week, for six hours, she sat in a chair in a lighted square. And in this room, when over 1,500 people came to to this art exhibit, which essentially, as you can see hopefully in this picture up, Uh, behind me, was her sitting in a chair opposite another chair, and people were invited to come in and sit, and all she did is look into their eyes. We're going to look now at some pictures from a photographer who took pictures of people who were sitting across from her, and what you're going to see on there is how long they had been sitting there when the picture was taken. Let's look at it now. Wow, so like, I, I created this slide work and I knew what was coming and watching it still, I'm the, the, it's the power, the mystery, the impact of being seen, of being known. I try to say it every Sunday when I preach. Help us believe that you know us, that you see us in all of our brokenness and all of our beauty and all of our glory and all of our fragmentation and you never walk away you always move towards us to restore and redeem. Because if you begin to believe that God sees you like God saw Hagar, maybe against all the odds, maybe when life is falling apart around you, you miraculously can still trust God with your life. Because finally, someone who sees me. So let me just tell you right now, To the single mom or single dad struggling to make it on your own. To the person with a serious illness that you haven't told anyone about. To the person who doesn't know how you're going to make it financially this month. To the person who's married but incredibly lonely. To the person who didn't plan on being single this long. To the person who's been holding a secret that has negatively impacted you for years. To the person who's been neglected. To the person riddled with shame. To the person battling addiction. To the person who is black and brown skinned in a world designed for whiteness. To the person who has no idea how they're going to stay isolated for months to the person who has suffered rejection from family because of who you are. God sees you. God sees you. I hope you can believe that today because being seen is an avenue of healing. And so lastly, the invitation. It's an invitation to allow yourself To be seen by god so that you can then see others if you are radically seen and known you have the capacity to be transformed into a person who instead of having only transactional relationships with others you can begin to have transformative relationships with others because you are now emulating jesus intentionally looking to see people and I would even say especially to see those people that other people are ignoring. That's what Jesus did all the time. I mean, when I talk about people about Jesus who are new to Christian faith, they'll often say to me, okay, so I'm getting this old Jesus story down. I'm looking at and reading the Bible, all these stories, but where was he for 30 years? I mean, we have almost nothing here, and then all of a sudden he comes on the scene. I mean, if you wanted me to vote for a politician and there was a 30-year gap in their story, I'd have to go figure out what happened during those 30 years. We need to get receipts from that time frame. (laughs) But apparently, what Jesus was doing was placing himself in such proximity to people from every conceivable background and place in life that he, when he was 30, was able to walk into all sorts of unjust scenarios that were loaded with emotion and story and pain and sadness, and people around Jesus felt seen. And as Jesus followers, this is what we should do as well. Jesus saw everybody. The outcasts, the immigrants, the refugees, the traumatized, the discarded, the ostracized. But he also, and this is important, he saw the disciples sitting right next to him. It wasn't just the folks out there that Jesus would see, maybe even temporarily. He saw his own chosen family. He saw those he was around all the time. Because it'd be easy right now to say, you know what, Fred? I agree, let's go see people, count me in, I'm going to volunteer. But will you volunteer to finally see perhaps your spouse, your close friend, your coworker, your child, your next-door neighbor, that annoying uncle or aunt, that person that posts things you hate on Facebook? Will you see those people that are close to you When you do that kind of work. And how do we go about it? Well, we use the questions that Jesus used, I think. Where have you come from? Where are you going? And this is what I think Jesus had. He had what I call just compassionate curiosity. Compassionate curiosity. What would it mean for you to develop compassionate curiosity in your life? I know I need to say more often to people, instead of just reacting, as i do sometimes but to respond especially when there's been a really strong emotional response i wonder why this has produced such a response in this person there's a story there i haven't heard you've heard me say an enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard will you risk it with people in your life and ask those questions and develop that Compassionate curiosity. I'm going to go one step further here, and I've told this story about a year or so ago, and I'm going to say it again today, and it might even freak you out a little bit, but I think you need to go one step further. John Calvin actually said this, so I'm not a complete heretic. You can't really know God unless you know yourself, and you can't know yourself unless you have seen God. That was actually a pretty powerful thing, not just Calvin, but Lenny Most of the major religions and the masters of those religions will say very similar things. So my question is this Are you seen? by yourself Or are you terrified of yourself of Really knowing who you are Because when you find yourself, you know what you're gonna find you're gonna find God Who has been there all along loving you with compassion as God does right now in the midst of your life and whatever unraveling that you're experiencing. So here's the story. Last fall, I was at this very intense retreat learning about race and injustice. It was intense and challenging, deep dive into the impact of white supremacy. So the leaders made sure that we did tons of these meditative grounding exercises. And we would place our feet firmly on the ground, we'd place our hands up, and we'd close our eyes, we'd sit in silence for a couple of minutes, and then we'd have a guided meditation by a man named Jonathan Stahls. And this particular meditation was called The Compassionate Friend. And the leader said, as you sit there in silence and your eyes are closed, "Imagine, imagine whoever it is in your life, someone that you would consider your compassionate friend comes alongside you. And so I immediately thought of my wife, Torelli in my mind's eye as I sat there in silence. But something interesting happened. And I believe this is God's work. She receded into the picture and in stepped a seven-year-old version of myself, seven-year-old Fred. And I talked with seven-year-old Fred, Fred who was That little seven-year-old was such an anxious child, so afraid, part of a lot of violence within his family system. And seven-year-old Fred with the slamming doors and the fists going through doors and just afraid of a lot of things. Seven-year-old Fred who had been molested at five and six years old. And here I sat with seven-year-old Fred. And in this oh moment, with my eyes closed, seven-year-old Fred says to me, It's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. We skipped stones on a river. And as the time was ending, I said, You have to give me something. And seven-year-old Fred in this, I didn't know. I don't know, I guess I'm some kind of almost like a trance, it felt like. Seven-year-old Fred pulls out a rabbit's foot, my rabbit's foot from my childhood that I had not thought about or seen in 50 years. It was my way of self soothing as a child, I would rub on this rabbit's foot. Um, And then the person leading the guided retreat broke the silence and said this, whoever this compassionate friend is recognize that it's you. And when I opened my eyes, tears had been welling up in my shut eyes, and so when I opened my eyes, water just poured down my face and onto my shirt. You know, Torelli, my wife, can be very compassionate with me. God knows she needs to be. But who could be more compassionate than seven-year-old Fred to 57-year-old Fred? And in that moment, to see God in the midst of it, because as you begin to really know and see yourself, you will see that God has been there all along, waiting. Are you feeling invisible today? God sees you entirely. God loves you fiercely. No more hiding. No deed to hide. amen let us pray gracious God help us today to connect all of this to what you have done for us in the person and work of your son Jesus who on the cross sees all of us who as we said last week outstretched arms is a sign of God reaching out to all of us and so give us grace today to believe That you see us and you know us in the midst of feeling like things are falling apart. Especially then, help us to know this transformative reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.